Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000025 of the mission. My name is Daniel James. I will be your host through till 8 this evening. I'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners from where I'm broadcasting, and that is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Thank you to Vaughan for another excellent episode of Double Bounce. He'll be back next Tuesday. You never know what you're going to get, but you always know it's going to be entertaining with uh, with Double Bounce and uh, Vaughan. That's uh, part of the art of quality broadcasting. In terms of this show, The Mission, we have a great show for you tonight. Shortly I'll play an interview I recorded with author and activist Thomas Mayer. He has recently released his debut book, Finding the Heart of the Nation. It's basically about the Uluru Statement, how we got it, what it means and where to from here. And it's actually a timely discussion because there's a bit of noise around at the moment in the news about the Uluru Statement. Last week we finally saw the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt, interviewed on the ABC regarding his plans around progressing the Uluru Statement and constitutional recognition. Well, it would seem the government, which has been confirmed by Minister Wyatt today, is still pushing for a legislated voice to the Parliament, not one enshrined in the Constitution. Now, that has upset a lot of Aboriginal leaders across the country. And also, at this stage, we don't know what the government means about means when it talks about constitutional recognition. We don't know the question. We don't know what the process will be. And at this stage, we don't have any timelines. So therefore I'm having to dig deep into my well of optimism to have any faith that we're going to get anywhere near a successful referendum on recognition, let alone enshrined, an enshrined voice before the next election, the time frame that the government itself has set. And the remarkable thing about all this is it's one of the few instances at the moment in this uh, election cycle where we actually have bipartisan support. And yet we're nowhere at the moment. So I'll touch on some of that with Thomas, but we'll also discuss many other things as well. And in the second half of the show, I'll have a yarn with the deadly Charmaine Ingram about a new documentary that she has directed set in the Tiwi Islands around how mob up there are letting a couple of, led by a couple of staunch grandmothers actually look, each, look after each other every day and every night, and in particular getting kids to school every day, making sure that they're at home, ready to go to school by nine o'clock every night. I watched that doco earlier today, and I can tell you it's wonderful. It'll be screening on NITV on Sunday, but I'll give you more details around that later. So stick around. The best way to get in touch with me, of course, is via Twitter. My handle is at Mr. DT James, and you can use the hashtag the mission triple R if you feel like it, no pressure. So turn up the radio, stack the dishwasher, finish watering the garden, and tune in. This is the mission on Triple R. 
Thomas Mayer is a Torres Strait Islander man born on Larrakia country in Darwin. He's been a wharf labourer from the age of 17 until he became a union official for the Maritime Union of Australia in his early 30s. He applied the skills he picked up as a unionist and negotiated to advance the rights of Indigenous people, becoming a signatory to the Uluru Statement from the Heart and a tireless campaigner. Following the Uluru Convention, Thomas was entrusted to carry the sacred canvas of the Uluru Statement from the heart around the country, and he embarked on an 18-month journey from which he garnered support for constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice and a Maricata Commission for Truth-Telling and Agreement-Making or Treaties. The book is Finding the Heart of the Nation. It's available in all good bookstores. And Thomas is here with me now. How are you going, Thomas? Yeah, good. Thanks, Daniel. Um, as I mentioned um, just then, you spent 18 months travelling around the country promoting and discussing the Uluru Statement with a multitude of communities. What did you discover about yourself during that journey? Oh, well, I, I gained the confidence, really. Uh, you know, all that time talking to people, talking to crowds, uh, whether it was, you know, a, a small crowd in, in the bush or, you know, a large crowd at a conference, uh, it gave me the confidence uh, to to be a public speaker very much. But but mainly the, the confidence that uh, what we did at Uluru, um, these proposals for Voice Treaty Truth, uh, are spot on, you know, it's exactly what we need and it's very much supported by people if you just take the time to explain it to them. That, um, I've, I've, you know, done a bit of research for this interview, of course, and I've noted that you've said that a few times, that you've gone around the country and there's been sort of overwhelming support for, for the statement itself, and yet that is not reflected by our so-called representative politicians at the moment. Um, do you think that there is uh, uh, some sort of crack or flaw in representative democracy in this country at the moment? There definitely is for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, because uh, – and, and I think this is the fundamental flaw with uh, with legislation-making and policy-making when it comes to our people. It's the reason for – the um, you know the the most incarcerated people on the planet the um, you know the suicide rates the life expectancy gap all these things that we should be absolutely ashamed of as Australian people I think it's because our democracy is flawed for Aboriginal people we're only three percent of the population and less of that th- less than that three percent actually um, vote or enrol to vote and I travelled around before the May. Um, election, the federal election. I travelled around the bush, uh, 26,000 Ks we did in a small group. We enrolled uh, heaps of mob to vote um, and we followed the electoral commission around when they took the ballot box to these small communities and a lot of mob weren't there to vote. They were out on country for ceremony or they were, you know, earning a dollar and with an opportunity to go to, you know, take some tourists around. And so our democracy is fundamentally flawed where we are less than 3% of the population because of impoverishment, because we live remotely, less than that 3% vote. And the politicians just don't care because we don't impact. They're not representing us. It's that simple simple fact. Yeah, the sad truth, and it's been the truth throughout um, the history of colonialisation colonialization in this country, is if you want to do something positive in Aboriginal affairs, there isn't a vote in it. No, that's right. And we heard uh, silence on Indigenous matters leading up to the election. Um, 
people didn't vote based on what Indigenous people wanted or needed. Um, and that's the idea of the voice. I mean, a constitutionally enshrined voice is about enhancing our voices in this democracy so that we are able to affect the decisions that are made about our people before they're made. Exactly. We've had so much throughout um, our history. We've had all the programs, projects and initiatives designed to help us uh, actually retrofitting policies and programs and strategies that already currently exist. And so the voice at the heart of the nation's democracy is a way of getting that right from the outset instead of retrofitting everything. Well, that's that's the other thing about our democracy. We have a three-year federal election cycle um, and every every time there's an election, in fact more often than that, but um, at least every election, we're wondering as Indigenous people what's going to happen with our policy, what's going to happen with our representative bodies. And so constitutional enshrinement is about getting around that as well, uh, that um, with the change of government, uh, our previous representative bodies have been destroyed. Um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission was an example. John Howard opposed it mm. in opposition um, but, uh, you know, the Hawke government passed it. And as soon as he got into power, he destroyed it. Abolished and, it. And that vacuum of, uh, of voicelessness, you know, when we had no voice, we've seen some of the worst policy, you know, the, the disgraceful intervention and, uh, you know, and all these things that are, um, to, be, to be frank, fatal to our people. You, you sort of touched on the point there, again, about enshrining the voice in the Constitution. What seems to be the government's approach at the moment is a legislative response to the to the voice, and that is putting something in legislation that's not shrined in the constitution, and so therefore can be abolished, just like ATSIC was at the whim of any government. Is it a complete waste of t- our time to even consider negotiating a legislative response with the government? Well, by legislating it, we just do, it's a status quo. Um, we know from the history of our struggle that if it is only legislated, it's only a matter of time. It might not be in my lifetime. It might be in my children's lifetime. But a representative body will be destroyed or undermined by a hostile government. And we must constitutionally enshrine it. If we build this thing, uh, we must make it last. And, you know, consistency of policy making is important um, you know, with the consistency of a voice. Uh, have, have you received any sort of update as to what the Minister for Indigenous Australians thinking is around this at the moment? He's the one that sort of muted the legislative response in the first place. But since then, he seems to have fallen off the radar and I haven't, myself, haven't heard much from him. I don't know what negotiations or consultations that he's having with mob or people outside that. I would have thought if we're looking to get some sort of constitutional reform by the end of this term of parliament, the rubber really needed to hit the road probably three or four months ago. Uh, Where is Ken White? Do you know? Well, you know, there was great excitement when he was appointed the first Indigenous uh, person in Cabinet and Indigenous uh, Affairs Minister. But uh, And then he made that speech at the press club and, you know, people thought he was indicating that we were going to go there. He was going to put this to the people, as the Uluru Statement had asked. But then almost immediately a, a small number of very powerful people in the coalition started to push against it and and be heard and there's another flaw with our democracy you've got this you know small amount of uh you know extremely conservative people um that don't want to do anything for blackfellas um i think that uh but i do know that there are conservatives that support this 
um, and I think Ken Wyatt is one of them. Um, but what's important and, and for the listeners to know is that we need to get behind this movement. We need to be writing to the minister and the prime minister, um, getting on their case to say, you know, you must support the Uluru Statement and take a First Nations voice um, to the people and see it enshrined in the constitution. That's the only way that Ken's going to be able to achieve what he wants. You are listening to Triple R 102.7 FM. This is The Mission. My name is Daniel. I'm speaking with Thomas Mayer, the author of a new book, Finding the Heart of the Nation, which is out at all good bookstores. Well, if we just go back to the your journey yourself, itself, it's um, uh, your 18-month 18, 18 journey around Australia to, to promote the Uluru Statement. Uh, how did you come to be the message carrier for that? Well, I, um, I was a delegate elected from the Darwin Dialogue and went to Uluru with uh, around 270 of our people from all around the country. And uh, when we endorsed the Uluru Statement, you know, it was just an unforgettable moment. Uh, It's something that's etched in my heart and my soul that drives me. uh, It's still today. It hasn't been an 18-month journey. At the time of finishing the book, it was around 18 months. Mm -hmm. Um, So your journey is still essentially continuing. Yeah. Yeah, we can't take no for an answer on this. Yeah. And so I first saw the, the canvas, you know, this um, this beautiful canvas, the artwork and the statement printed in the middle of it. It was blank at the time at Uluru when we signed. We put all our names in these pencil marks there, um, ready for the, the artists to do their thing and the, the statement that we'd just endorsed that morning to be printed. Um, and I saw that this, this beautiful canvas was just so compelling to look at, you know, and mm. Uh, along it with is a the, beautiful thing. Yeah, the eloquent words, powerful words that don't miss, you know, what the torment of our powerlessness is that um, that really puts some, uh, you know, substantive but uh, achievable proposals forward. And I thought the people of the nation need to see this, you know. Uh, other mob need to see this. Uh, people in the big cities need to see this and that will help us start a movement. And we needed that because we didn't have any resources for a campaign. Turnbull almost immediately walked away from it um, and so we had a job to do. Seems to me that that's going to be a large part of his legacy if, if there actually is one, was his out-of-hand rejection of the Uluru Statement and then the mischaracterisation of it being a third chamber of... Of, of Parliament, which um, I found extremely disappointing from one of the more progressive members of his own government. And I think it's sort of – that really set the, 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 the conversation back a long way. It was utterly disrespectful the way he did it. It was done um, by media leak and then media release, did not consult with any Indigenous leaders, not even the Indigenous Advisory Council that he chooses. That's right, yeah. Um, they were as surprised as us and uh, it was just – utterly disrespectful and that I think that will be something that, uh, you know, um, I think we should be all ashamed of as the Prime Minister of the country to do that to Indigenous people. Now, to the book itself, it is actually a, a beautiful hardcover book. Um, you must be extremely happy with the way that it has turned out. It's got beautiful photography. Um, you're speaking to, you know, very eminent Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people in it. Um, from Marcia Langton to Julia, um, Jill Gallagher and everyone else in between. Um, are you happy with the way the book turned out? Uh, Hardy Grant, the publisher, did a great job. Uh, it's something that um, will look beautiful on the bookshelf, let alone reading it. You know, it's just a, a, a beautiful object. Well, it's not, a, you know, it's, it's not a book that you have to read from page to page. It's almost like a coffee book, coffee table book in a way that you can pick it up 
and you can get something out of it when you turn to any any page. Yeah, of course, as a writer, I hope people read it from start to finish. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's, it's so tempting to jump to someone that you know or you heard of and yeah. read their interview piece. Uh, and you mentioned, uh, you know, Jill Gallagher, um, the first treaty commissioner in this country, and, and Marcia Langton. Uh, but mostly I, I aim for people without a, a, a really big profile. You know, I wanted yeah. to bring the voices of, um, you know, ordinary but extraordinary Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders from all around the country, uh, bring their voices to, to people that wouldn't normally hear them. So you speak to, you, ha- you interview 21 people in the book, 19 of them are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Um, was there all of them having their own unique experience, of course? But were were there any common threads in in what they told you? Yes, definitely. Uh, two things immediately spring to mind: that um, that all of the people in this book, um, they're all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, with except with the exception of Danny Glover, <laughs> that kindly wrote a small piece in there. It was beautiful that piece too, by the way. Yeah, but it was an eye raiser when I saw it. Danny Glover. Wow, yeah. cool. Yeah. But you know. Prominent actor, but also a very prominent humanitarian as well. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I asked him to write in the book um, for an international perspective. But including him, everybody in that book has experienced racism. You know, that is one thing that yeah. is in common, have ex- has experienced it in their, in their living from day to day, um, have experienced and, and live with the consequences of racism. Uh, that was in common. The second thing, though, was that all of them have hope. Um, Everybody in that book uh, has a good story to tell as well, you know, something that they're proud of um, and their aspirations uh, for the future for their children. It's, it's all in there. Yeah, if you, if you work in Aboriginal affairs or trying to improve the outcomes of our people, um, if you're not an optimist, <laughs> you're going to go mad pretty quickly. Yeah, well, you're not much of a campaigner if you're not an optimist because you've got, <laughs> to, be, you've got to be fighting to win, you know, and, and that's the other great thing about the Uluru Statement and the proposals in it. I mean, we it's carefully thought through, these proposals, you know. Yeah. They are achievable. I mean, it's not everything that everybody wants, but that's the nature of consensus making as well. Uh, you're never going to have everything that everybody wants. Uh, but it's a step forward. And I understand as a unionist, I'm, I'm a trade unionist, that the very first thing that you need to do is set up a representative body. And when John Howard got rid of ATSIC, um, he was doing that purposefully to, div- to divide us, mm. um, just like how he watered down native title and made that more divisive. Um, the same Prime Minister tried to destroy the union movement by attacking the MUA, my union. Patrick's. And again, you touch on that in the book as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. And um, so while he failed to divide um, the union movement uh, by taking out, you know, a very strong uh, union, the Wharfies, in, on the MUA, um, he did succeed in getting rid of our representative body. So it's the first thing we need to do. It's a step forward. You mentioned before that, you know, of course not everyone can be happy with any sort of process like this and there has been some criticisms of the process to get to the Uluru Statement itself. Um, those, you know, criticisms centre around the process to get there not being as representative as it could have been. What what do you say to those critics? Oh, look, I don't think there was, you know, I think the process was great. I think it was unprecedented. I asked the elders, you know, in around the place if there'd ever been an opportunity like this before. 
13 dialogues, well-resourced, well-informed, experts there to answer our questions straight away, designed by Indigenous people, you know, Professor Megan Davis, the yeah. lead designer of it, an expert in public law, first Indigenous person elected to a United Nations permanent forum. Expert um, in constitutional law. Exactly. Um, a formula applied to participation, so one group didn't dominate it, you know, 60% traditional owners for cor- for cultural authority. And no process is perfect, so if anybody's going to wait for a perfect process and 700,000 mob to, you know, manage to get the time off and turn up into one room, you know, and or even get the resources to do, you know, a hundredth of that, yeah. Um, then they're, they're prepared to live with the status quo. And I'm not prepared to live with the, with the status quo. Um, we have a, a, you know, a very powerful but achievable set of uh, proposals and if we're just going to attack process forever, then we're never going to go anywhere. See, I think that's one of the things that um, uh, often gets missed in the whole you know, advocacy around the Uluru Statement is that people see it as, as, a, as, a, as a radical step but when you actually look at the statement itself, it's actually very modest in, what, in terms of what it's asking yeah, it is. I mean, it's simply a representative body, and it's to you know to be enshrined in the constitution that excluded us in 1901. I mean, that doesn't take away our our sovereignty either, as some people will say, um, in opposition to it as well. That it's not powerful enough. I mean, our sovereignty is like the statement says. You know, born therefrom, remain attached thereto, one day return thither. It's something that can't be taken away by a white fellow document. Uh, if we were included in the Constitution in 1901, it wouldn't have taken away our sovereignty, who we are. Yeah. Um, we're, we're born with that. It's in our heart and it's in our country. Uh, so, you know, it's they are very reasonable proposals um, and yet powerful enough to, to change our issues. Yeah, we, we, we've touched on process and you're still going around the country, um, you know, promoting the book, talking about the statement itself. You would have you know, observed the various treaty processes that are going on around the country at the moment, probably most notably here in Victoria at the moment in terms of, you know, we being further down the track than probably anyone else. Um, what do you make of the processes that you've seen so far and, you know, do you hold out hope that, you know, these processes will achieve meaningful treaty or treaties? I think they're very difficult things for us to take on but we need to take them on and uh you know i think that there's some great work being done here in victoria um treaties this is what's important about the voice to treaty um the the treaty is between the state government and the first nations here uh we are in a federal system so the federal government has the ultimate power over you know most things the state can only give so much it's like uh, to explain it as a unionist, you know, a log of claims that's limited. Yep. We can only claim so much from a state government and and especially for the territory. I'm from the Northern Territory and the Constitution has a territory power so it doesn't matter what we negotiate in the territory, the Commonwealth Government can destroy um, those outcomes. Yep. So a, a national representative voice, you know, representing mob, um, chosen by our people, um, accountable to our people and, and unapologetic in its representation because it's protected in the Constitution is extremely important to treaty making so that the obligations that the federal government has are able to be negotiated and then also defended. Yeah, absolutely. I think some people have kind of, again, mischaracterised the representative body that's mentioned um, or was at the core of the earlier statement, saying, well, there's no use having this representative body if we don't have a treaty. But 
my view, and I don't know what's the view of, of obviously, of um, uh, Megan Davies' um, view, is that, well, that representative body would then be charged with starting the negotiation process around a national treaty. Is that the way you see it? Yeah, support it. I mean, there's some First Nations that have no leverage, you know, as in, you know, uh, economic activity on their country or, um, you know, resources on their country. Um, and so a national representative body is, is simply about unity and, and helping each other out. First Nations actually being able to talk about um, these sorts of things and strategize together. Uh, at the moment, um, yeah, we don't have that. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is, you know, I've organised the rallies and the actions around different issues um, and you can have, you know, several speakers on an issue and 20 different solutions to a problem. Yeah. And in every one of these rallies and conferences and forums that we go to, um, we talk about unity. But unity actually takes work and it takes compromise and it takes structure. And that's what the Uluru Statement tries to do. It, it's about building that unity in a genuine way that is protected from people like John Howard. Well, like I said, it's a, it's a, it's a great book and it's beautifully written. And this is your first crack at writing something this substantial? Yeah, certainly, yeah. So have you got anything else that you, you're going to head our way in terms of writing? What, what's, what's next for you? Yeah, so um, I'm doing a, a children's version of Finding oh, the Heart of the Nation, Fantastic. basically, um, to help uh, children understand, yep. you know, what happened at Uluru um, and their families and their parents. Because, and we, we've seen how yeah. um, how that works so well with uh, Dark Emu yeah. and uh, Welcome to Country. So, yeah, a children's version of this would be would be fantastic. Absolutely. Well, Thomas Mayer, thank you very much for your time. The book is Finding the Heart of the Nation, the journey of the Uluru Statement towards voice, treaty and truth. It is available in all good bookstores. I encourage you to go to an independent book bookstore and get it. And if they don't have it, they can order it in. Thomas Mayer, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Daniel, and I love your writing too, brother. <laughs> Cheers. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You are indeed listening to Triple R 102.7 FM or rrr.org.au on the interwebs. My name is Daniel. You're listening to a little program called The Mission. Thank you very much to Thomas Mayer for his time. Like I said, I encourage you to go out and get that book, Finding the Heart of the Nation. It helps you understand what we're all banging on about with Uluru Statement from the Heart and the process and where we want to get to in terms of recognition. Uh, on to our next interview with um, a young Australian filmmaker. Long, like... Um, uh, many other parts of Australia, the Tiwi Islands have a young Aboriginal population. But even up there it's even more pronounced, with half the population being under the age of 19. Sitting in Wurramiyunga, Taramagajiri, which means look after each other in the local language, is a half an hour documentary that follows patrollers and grandmothers Jane Puncini and Camilla Tipunwadu. I think I've got that wrong, I've probably, probably got it wrong, I'll be correcting in a sec as they work through the night to ensure that uh, local kids are off the streets by 9pm and ready for school the next day. Tia Mungajiri screens on Sunday on NITV at 8.30pm and we're lucky to have the director and deadly energy woman, Charmaine Ingram, on the line to tell us about it from Darwin. Charmaine, welcome to Triple R. Hello, how are you? Good, thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time. 
Um, That's okay. And congratulations on the documentary. I watched it this afternoon and I absolutely enjoyed it. So much um, vibrancy, so much poignancy and such a, an important issue. H- how did the project come about? Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, look, I was living down in Central Australia. I was living in Alice Springs for a while there as well and um, there's quite a lot of night patrollers working hard um, in the town camps and also in the outer Central Australian Aboriginal communities there too. So I'd originally come up with the idea um, from a lot of time that I'd spent out at Yundamu and uh, spoke to a few of the um, night patrollers there. So originally the story was set for Yundamu um, and then we had brought it up to Tiwi just for a bunch of reasons. So, um, you know, the patrollers are in most Aboriginal communities here in Queensland and um, some places in WA. So it's a story that can kind of be told anywhere uh, as long as it's driven through those, you know, characters. Yeah, um, one of the things that I really... Um, struck me about the about the documentary is that you know Wurramyunga used to be a, a Catholic mission, and you know the the, the residents there now have a, a strong culture that that shares the the traditional culture that goes also goes hand in hand or side by side with Catholicism up there. How, how did you mm. how did you find that? Well, I was brought up Catholic as well, and I'm Aboriginal, so I, you know, really have an understanding of um, what it's like, I guess, to have a faith and a culture. And, you know, they're not necessarily by the, you know, my belief is not necessarily by, um, you know, the the book of the Bible or anything like that, but it's that strong faith that was instilled um, through our, you know, grandmothers and grandfathers and elders um, because obviously they were around when you know the mission days were happening and it's something that's just filtered down um, and married you know with our culture so over there they're really proud of their Catholic culture um, as well as you know obviously their Tiwi culture and I guess for you know other people looking in they they might find it really hard to understand but when you get over there you, you get it and all both sides are embraced and you go to church in the morning and they sing all the songs in Tiwi and they've turned, you know, their Catholic faith very much into their cultural faith as well. Yeah, it's it's not a question of either or. It's something that seems to have amalgamated and, and generated a, a uniqueness in, in their culture. And like you said, it, there's a, you know, a lot of Catholic missions that have been around the place, so it's not u- unique to there, but... Um, it really does shine through in, in, in the documentary. So, um, you know, yeah, yeah. well done for highlighting that. Um, the the main protagonists of the story, Janie, Camilla and um, Nihilus, what, what were they like to work with? So they're, they're basically, Janie and Camilla are the two grandmothers that do the night patrol and make sure that, you know, the children are indoors, at home and ready to go to school the, the next morning. What was it like working with them? Oh, look, it was amazing. When we were first originally doing some research um, about, you know, just making phone calls, really, about um, who would be good-suited characters for, um, you know, this tentative documentary at the time, um, their names were coming up by their managers saying, um, you know, Janie's um, very loud and strong and, you know, good crack-up, both of them are, whereas Miller's... Um, a lot more quieter, um, although um, I wouldn't want to rev her up at, at all because, um, yeah, she's got some fight in her and some feist. 
um, nihilist. It's hard to try and um, keep a straight face because he's just always smiling. It's a real and character, yeah. Yeah, look, I call them my family. So when, every time I go back to Tiwi, you know, we it's just like normal, really. And they always come over to Darwin and stay at my house now. So, um, you know, documentary aside and being able to tell their beautiful story, um, it really was, you know, a wonderful time to get to know them and I guess take our friendship, um, you know, to that family level. Now, one of the, one of the, you know, the Tiwis, like many other Aboriginal communities around the country, have you know had you know their a series of problems, but what the 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 elders and and the adults in the community now seem to have well have definitely realised is that with the population so young, fifty percent under the age of nineteen, that there is a real, I guess, impetus now making sure that those kids finish their schooling and have better opportunities than perhaps their parents did. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, the point of this documentary for me was to, you know, there's so many government programs that are being, you know, started and, and it's not that's not what makes the success of, um, you know, service delivery. It's the people delivering that service. And you look at people like Janie and Camilla, mm. um, who are Kiwi women working in, you know, a government program, but they make it their own. So... Um, the point of that was to, you know, it, it was a, a, a small aim at government as well to say, hey, you know, we know how to look after ourselves, our communities. We know what's best for our kids. Um, we fill these jobs and wear these uniforms, but, um, you know, you aren't the ones that are driving this. And, and it's these women that come up with their framework outside of what's on the paper for these government programs that make the difference. Yeah, I was told very early on when I um, worked in Aboriginal affairs back in the day for government was by, uh, you know, a senior Aboriginal person is that, you know, we can come in from Melbourne and go to these communities down at Lake Tyres or up in Shepparton or wherever it may be um, yeah. and, you know, throw dollars, you know, throw, you know, glossy documents at communities. But at the end of the day, if it isn't driven by that community and owned by that community, it's just not going to work. So that's that's one of the pleasing things to see about this, you know, night patrol, yellow shirt, you know, initiative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we really tried to show how Janie, Camilla, Nihilus as well, with the yellow shirts in the mornings, um, are the ones that are working well past, you know, their, their knock-off time, their clock-off time, yeah. getting up well before they have to start and taking care of their community. And, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait people are always often perceived as, um, you know, that we can be neglectful in, in certain circumstances or, you know, we're, our kids are running around on the streets. But at the end of the day, you know, our communities are like how white fellas would grow up and play in their, you know, their, their street playing cricket or their courtyards. That's what our whole community is like. Yeah. There's always surveillance. It's not about, um, you know, only your mum and dad are, are keeping an eye out on you. You've got that whole community to look after you. And when you go there and, you know, as being an Aboriginal person, you know, you've got five, ten mums, you've got several grandmothers and grandparents and, you know, countless aunties and uncles and um, everyone's the eyes and the ears of the community and that's what we wanted to show. Yeah, and as a kid it can definitely be a double-edged sword because you're looking over your shoulder <laughs> you every five seconds. Much, can you? <laughs> no, you can't. 
Um, it yeah. is 11 to 8 here on Triple R. I'm speaking with Charmaine Ingram. She is the director of a documentary that is screening on NITV at 8.30pm on Sunday, the documentary. And now, can you pronounce it for me just in case I mess it up, Charmaine? Sure, it's Teya Mangajiri. Teya which and, will be... um, I just wanted to quickly also thank um, the other filmmakers who were a part of the NITV Red Ochre Initiative and, um, yeah. you know, for the funding from Screen Australia and Screen Territory and obviously NITV for making this possible because, you know, it, we want to be able to tell stories from, um, you know, our own perspectives. So, yeah. Uh, NITV in particular just punches well above its weight and the the stories that it brings to, you know, general broad audiences week in, night out is just um, amazing. One one of the um, uh, people involved in the project uh, and actually narrated the project was uh, Rob Collins, which I think is probably a good career move for him because he doesn't really have much of a face for film or television. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't tell his wife that. (laughs) Um, yeah, look, it was really great to have him involved in the project, obviously being a Tiwi man as well. And, yeah. Um, you know, having the right scripts and especially when language was involved, it was just the perfect fit because he knew how to pronounce everything. He knew what all the words were and language. So, um, yeah, we were really happy that he wanted to jump on board and pleased that, um, you know, he really enjoyed the story for that one too. Now, before I let you go, I'll just ask you a Simple question. Um, how did uh, Yunjidi woman from Cairns get into filmmaking? Yirinji. How's it spelled? How's it pronounced? Yirinji, yeah. Yirinji, right. Yirinji, yeah. Close enough. Uh, um, oh, look, I just, you know, can't shut up, I guess, back in the day. <laughs> I'm a lot more quieter these days with writing, but um, look, just started out in radio, became a journalist, used to be a journalist for NITV and ABC and started, um, I guess, getting more interested in longer form and cameras and, um, you know, stylized, I guess, pieces. And here I am in Darwin making films. So, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, I'm, I'm a very lucky person. Well, yeah, luck and luck and hard work at you there. You're doing um, a really good job. The documentary is fantastic. Um, Charmaine, I'll let you get back to your life. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Cheers. Triple. You're listening to The Mission. We're nearly at the end of our time here together. I'd like to thank Thomas and Charmaine for their generous time and their wisdom and their knowledge and their passion for the pursuits that they are following. Uh, I'm in the rare position to actually announce who we've got on the show next week, which is uh, a refreshing surprise. So next week we'll be joined by Claire G. Coleman, who will be here to talk about her second novel, The Old Lie. Always good to hear from Claire. It'll be her first time on the mission here. So it will be an illuminating discussion as always. She is a passionate woman and uh, never takes any prisoners. So always good to speak to her. And I will also be joined by Richard Weston, the Chief Executive Officer for um, the Secretariat of National Aboriginal Islander Child Care who will be coming in to talk about a a Family Matters report which shows that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are now 10.2 times more likely to be removed from their families than non-Aboriginal children. So we're still 
got a stolen generation, but um, no one likes to actually call it that these days. Uh, until next week, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your ongoing support. And as always, to see us out is a little bit of Charlie Pride. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>